Good morning. This morning we're again in 1 Corinthians. This time we're just doing two verses. Let me explain why. The next couple of verses are about what people were like before they're converted and then what happens with redemption and uh, sanctification and so forth to be new people in Christ. So those verses need to be together. So I'm just covering these two, and Paul's using some irony here. While we're still on the title slide, I'll read the two verses to you in their entirety. 1 Corinthians 6, 7, and 8. Actually, then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. So that's Paul's strong words to the church of Corinth. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness, your mercy, for the truth of the gospel, and for the fact that we have you and we have brothers and sisters in Christ, and we can pray for one another. We continue to pray for Pastor Eric for his recovery, and pray that you give us wisdom and understanding as we search the scriptures today, in Jesus' name, amen. So let's go to the first part of verse 7. First part of verse 7. Actually, then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. I talked about this last week, and this... Uh, Paul said it was over trivial matters. So some people evidently had more clout or they had patrons that took care of them that were within the church. And they, rather than resolving whatever issues they had, would go to the secular authorities and fight one another within the church, only they're fighting in court. And I talked about that last week. Paul is very upset about this, and this is a strong rebuke. So the, the wording in the Greek, by the way, is, is stronger than it's really easy to bring out in English. And in fact, this is really bad. And he calls this a defeat. Now, he's a, there's a play on words. When you go to court, you're looking to win a case. So one Christian goes to court against the other Christian and sues each other. The fact it happened at all, Paul says, that's your defeat, okay? And your desire to win is probably motivated by something that's not good, and we'll see that. So <clears throat> there's a play on words. The defeat, according to Paul, is not a defeat in court. It's a moral failure. Whatever the secular court decides, this is a moral failure, the word for defeat here is only used a few times in the New Testament. And um, so it's not a, excuse me, in the entire uh, Greek scriptures, the Old Testament, Septuagint, and the New Testament, it's also in Romans eleven twelve. So with those few uses, there's a verb form of it as well. So we get the idea that it's like, uh, losing in a battle. Let me talk about that a little bit. 
in a, in a footnote, Dr. Fee says this, the, the Greek word found only here and in Romans eleven twelve, and Isaiah 31, 8 in the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament, in the entire body of Greek literature, it's the only place it's found. The verb means to be overcome. The noun implies defeat in the sense of suffering a great loss. Now, let me talk about Romans eleven twelve. There it's about Israel. Now, there's a future hope for Israel. But there it says, now if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure, the word there is defeat, is riches for Gentiles, how much more will be their fulfillment? So in that case, because of what happened in, in the first century, Israel, for the time being, is now no longer the center, but um, is, is the church and salvation history. But there's a future for ethnic national Israel. So that's their fulfillment. So the defeat happened because of God's purposes that the gospel would go to the ends of the earth. So what does it mean to be defeated? According to Paul, it means to not live according to what God's done for you, to be part of the body of Christ, to even if, as we will see, have someone mistreat you, uh, as they did Paul, actually. And yet we pray for one another, we care for one another, we love one another, and we want to maintain our testimony of the gospel now, um, there's a play on words here. What does it mean to be a defeated Christian? I thought of something that happened a few decades ago. There was a fellow I used to fish with, and I didn't see him for a long time. I knew he lived with his aunt, I, so I had that number. I called over there. I said, hey, I haven't seen so-and-so for a long time. Is he okay? He's a fellow Christian. She said, well, did you not hear? He almost died. He's in the hospital. And so I found out which one, and I went over to visit him. And when I got there and prayed for him, he said, well, I called the church where I go to church, and they told me and asked if some, somebody could come over and visit me and pray for me. And he said, the lady said, we don't associate with defeated Christians. So now he is in the hospital needing help, but he's defined as a defeated Christian. Now, where did that come from? Well, I wrote an article uh, about, we saw a little video about that too, uh, New Apostolic Reformation, but there's a guy by the name of George Warnock who was one of these supposed uh, elite apostles, and Here's what he says about this sort of thing. What does it mean to be a defeated Christian? George Warnock, about 1951. He said, oh, the immensity of these words. And what is more, Christ is going to remain right where he is at God's right hand until there shall arise, says Warnock, a group of overcomers who shall conquer over all God's enemies. And, and then with some ellipses, and yet... The majority of Christians are looking for a rapture 
uh, any moment when Christ is supposed to catch away a miserable, defeated, disease-risen church. End quote. George Warnock, Feast of Tabernacles. So the elitists say, if you are an ordinary person, and you go through the trials of life, and you have difficulties, whether you're poor or you had a, an accident or you ended up in the hospital or you had a difficulty, you're a disease-ridden, defeated Christian. And furthermore, no use looking for the blessed hope because God won't come for a defeated church. We need to defeat God's enemies first and be glorious Christians and then there's some hope that God wants us. And when I heard that from this fellow that I knew, I thought, how bad is it that when you have your worst time in life, you can't even be visited because you're defeated? Please, we need each other, and we need to be kind to each other and not label one another defeated. But Paul said they're defeated because they go to the world to uh, settle their grievances. Let me cite Camp and Rosner, who have a good commentary on 1 Corinthians. In any instance, instance of litigation, they say the goal is to achieve a personal victory. Paul states as emphatically as he can that the outcome of the present case is already known, no matter what the result of the lawsuit, whether the plaintiff or the defendant wins. It is a defeat for both parties, with the church as a whole becoming the real loser. They were defeated the moment the legal proceeding began, since its initiation served as testimony to the church's failure to resolve the conflict as a healthy family would expect to do. And I want to make a disclaimer here. I am not saying by interpreting this according to the author's meaning, Paul's inspired by the Spirit, that Christians, that in whatever happens in life, in the secular world, I'm not saying Christians can't have their day in court, nor is Paul. Paul appealed to civil courts when he was attacked for preaching the gospel. When all these things happened, he appealed. And so this is not against civil law. This is against Christians who have clout going after other Christians and doing it in the secular arena when they could have settled it. Does that make sense? Paul appealed to the courts of law. So he's not saying you can't have your day in court, but he is saying take these things and get them resolved with each other in the church so that the gospel is not harmed. And honestly, I think when people are having their time of need, they don't need to be called a defeated Christian simply because they got old, tired, sick, had an accident, had something wrong physically, and we need to pray for each other. And several of the scholars mentioned Matthew eighteen fifteen to 17. I won't go there right now. But there it says, if it's a sin issue, your brother go to your brother in private, and if he won't listen, bring 
a couple witnesses and get this resolved that way. Matthew 18, 15 to 17. So we have ways of doing this. Now, generally, here's, here's the big problem. Christianity seems to be everywhere, but when you really look, it seems to be nowhere. And so it's pretty hard to define the church. But we're talking about people who love the Lord and fellowship together and care for one another, who do not want to harm one another. That's what I'm talking about. Now let's look at verse 7b. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? Now, as Paul says this with these rhetorical questions, this statement would seem outrageous to people nowadays. Because it's as if we have in the secular world a, a culture of grievance. No matter what happens, somebody did me wrong, and I'm the victim. And so... Paul is saying in the church, if you are a child of God and you know the Lord Jesus and you're fellowship with one another, whatever wrong might happen is not going to keep you from the, the relationship you have with Christ, the inter- eternal inheritance you have, and what God is doing in your life. And I, I, I hardly agree with that. And I'll cite some passages where we see that's how Paul himself lived because they wronged him. So rather not, why not be wrong? So somebody didn't do something I thought they should have done. Well, that happens. So the answer to, to these uh, rhetorical questions depends on whether one has an eternal perspective. This we know for sure. If God is blessing you, and he's giving you eternal promises, no one can take those from you. No Christian or non-Christian can take away the promises of God. And he brings many, the many to glory. And another point I have on the slide here, if we honor God by doing what is right, even if wrong, we do not lose anything. If you want to, let's look at this together. Turn to 2 Corinthians 12, 15. I want to cite this, 2 Corinthians 12, 15. And then we'll also look at Colossians 3, 23 through 24. This one in 2 Corinthians 12, 15 is Paul's issue with the Corinthian church continued on. It's still going on in 2 Corinthians. And they had a very low regard for him. But Paul's willing to practice what he preached. Look at what he said. 2 Corinthians 12, 15. Paul says, I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? Or other versions, I think the King James says, even though the more I love you, the less I be loved. Either way, this is part of Paul's long fool speech. Because they kept attacking him to the point where, okay, you believe all these things. So he went through all of his experience, and it's called the fool speech, because he didn't really want to do that. Is it worth being loving and kind to the body of Christ and our Christian friends, even when a wrong happens, which happens with any people interacting? It happens in families. 
You can't get through this world without being wronged. And if we do things God's way, aren't we blessed? Now, let's look at Colossians 3, 23 through 24. I mentioned that also here on the slide, and I'll cite it to you. If you're really quick, you can get to it in your Bible. I'll, I'll wait a second. Colossians 3, 23, 24. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. Verse 24, knowing, knowing, Colossians 3, 24, that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Now let's think about that. If any group, any Christian group, works together on what things that happen, meetings, luncheons, outreaches, the, the caring of widows, we saw that one in Acts, whatever happens, what we do, we're serving the Lord. And if we don't get the recognition that we would like or if someone is harsh towards us or someone is downright mean, that happens. Things are said that shouldn't be said. The Lord wants us to know, according to Paul, we're working for him. And if he, as we understand what God's called us to do, if he approves of us serving him, and loving him, we are not going to lose any valuable reward because it's eternal. It's from the Lord you receive the inheritance. And I think that's the biggest problem, and especially true here in the Corinthian church, is a lack of appreciation for the eternal. Because we haven't seen it. Is there eternal reward? Will God reverse things at times in eternity so the people who weren't noticed who were hated or mistreated are rewarded by the Lord and so forth so we don't want to behave like pagans let's go to the next slide one Corinthians six eight on the contrary you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. And there's something special about new Christians, about people who come to the Lord under often under very difficult situations. Maybe like Saul of Tarsus, he was the one persecuting the church. But once he was converted, they received him. Now he's a brother, brother Saul, now Paul. I love that sort of thing. I, I honestly, when I was a brand new Christian in 1971, that's one thing that was really amazing is how people that don't have much going for them gather in a little church that had no status or notoriety in that little town, but they love the Lord and they sing simple songs about eternity, 
and, and uh, the Lord's return and joy that we have, the joy of salvation. And they allowed me to be part, even though I was a wicked sinner who was on the attack just a week earlier. And what really grieves my heart is that as uh, numbers multiplied in the evangelical version of Christendom and the mega churches and the power and all the things that happened, people started mocking the idea of singing about heaven. Well, yep, you're obviously defeated Christians. You can't do anything worthwhile here, so you're hoping for heaven. And I've, I've preachers started to make fun of us because our hope is in eternity. And that shouldn't happen. Do you know how much the Bible teaches about prophecy in the, in the kingdom and being heirs of the kingdom and having eternal reward in Christ? How much did Jesus teach about that? This whole kingdom now thing is false. We enter the kingdom, but we're still in this fallen world. Now, there's sort of a, in the technical terms, an inclusio, which would be like brackets. So he says, on the contrary, the Greek is but, it's a strong adversative. So in verse 7, it talked about being wrong. And then here it says, you do wrong. So in the process of being angry for being wronged, he says, you turn around and you wrong the whole church. It's a, it's a play on words that gets your attention. It's an emphatic statement. So the ones who perceive themselves to be victim, victims become victimizers of the church. Now, it doesn't shock me the world's like this. Right now, all you have to do is watch the news. And they, the, 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 the anger, the hatred, who's the evil one, who's the victim, it's just awful. And people, whoever they may be, going about ordinary life are considered evil victimizers and vice versa, and it's just gotten terrible. But I believe that the family of God is where we're safe where God is taking us. Jesus is the only true victim. He died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. He bore the sin. He died for sins. And if that is our standing in Christ, doesn't mean we don't care what's going on. It's just horrid. I don't know. Maybe I'm the only one. But this last week when some of this stuff came out, I didn't know whether to be sad or mad. It was just... It just made me sick, literally. Now we can see the world for what it is. It's just sick, what's going on. And we're going to stand for life and for hope and for redemption. So, um, but we can't victimize the church. Likely, there was a desire that I'm going to win, therefore I'll be important. That's what's going on here. Next week... We're going to look at verses 9 and 10, which mention the kingdom of God. And it goes, we'll go through a list, Paul does, of everything we used to be, and then it says everything we are. And 
there's an old gospel song I was listening to the other day on uh, uh, one of the channels I get, uh, Child of the King. Thank God I'm a child of the king. That used to be a great thing, and people sing about it, and sometimes we think, oh, that's kind of pathetic. I want to be the victor now. I'll make a statement from a scholar, and then we'll go to applications. Dr. Gardner, his commentary has been very helpful. Like Israel, in Romans 11, he says the the Corinthians have failed to see their true inheritance of the kingdom of God with all his blessings. These blessings, they get a win at court, pale into insignificance. In fact, the way they are pursuing their grievances leads them to the same unrighteousness and the same wrongdoing and defrauding so typical of the world around them. We cannot have the church be like the world. How many banners are out there on what people think are churches saying the same thing the world says in favor of wickedness? This should not be. We got to go to the scripture. Let's have some applications. Number one, we must not make worldly distinctions which lead to false judgments. We're going to go to James and talk about that in the book of James. We need to recognize the value of every member of the body of Christ. And three, if we are treated unjustly, we should seek grace to respond in a godly manner in order to honor God. Honor God. That's the key thing. Let's go to the book of James. I have a few verses here. Boy, it's been a lot of decades since I taught through James. I think I remember in the 80s when we should have thought of this long before, but when I first started teaching verse by verse through the Bible, because we got tired of everything going here and there and every new fad that came through town, let's just teach the Bible. We may get it. Let's try to get it right and we can learn from it. But one thing about it, God's word doesn't change. So if we teach it, we won't have to apologize later. One of the first books I taught through was James. That was in the early 80s, I think. So let's go back and let's look at that. And some have done Bible studies on this. We're going to look at some verses in James chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. And then we'll do some more. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring, literally the Greek says the, says the word tactile, it's like a, a gold finger. It's like very prominent. And fine clothing comes into your assembly. And a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. Now we'll get to the next verse. Let me make a statement here. Through church history, things have been done one way or the other. Some decided, okay, it's not good that somebody has a lot of money and they get the attention, so let's change it. So you create like a monastic uh, uh, honor system. 
So they purposely make themselves as miserable as they can. One guy sat on a pole for I don't know how long. And they make it, you can't come into our monastery until you sit out here for a few years and prove you're worthy to be baptized. And so you reverse the thing. And people are, whoever is the most miserable and poor and bad off, they're the high honored ones. But the point isn't whether you're someone with more assets or less assets. We know that from Corinth. We know that from Acts. We know that from different churches that were founded because people helped Paul establish the church. Chloe, who was mentioned early in 1 Corinthians, was a person of assets and status. And we see that also in Philippi with Lydia. It isn't where you came from. It isn't if you're poor or if you're rich, if you're well-dressed or ordinary or this or that or anything else. It's whether you know Christ and are part of the family of God. These other things God will use as he sees fit. But in this case, as James writes to Jewish Christians, probably, uh, mostly, because the, the assembly is called synagogue, a synagogue, there's this tendency toward favoritism. Partiality here is a word. Notice this says show no partiality. It's a word it's based on the Greek word for face. And another one is it's a compounded word, and it means to accept the face. Now, I do like watching the news, and I like watching people debate. Isn't it amazing how that happens in politics? Somebody comes in, oh, it's you, hey, you know, you get anything you want, you're the great whatever. And humans do that. It's not good. But the church shouldn't. Whoever comes in, their status is their part of the family of God, if they know him. And if they're lost, that's why we preach the gospel in the church, to become part of the family of God. That's what it matters. It's not a sin to be rich. It's not a sin to be poor. But it's a sin to show partiality. And that's what uh, James is getting at here. The New American Commentary on this translates this favoritism. Favoritism, in this commentary, says is a descriptive word for showing partiality. It literally means to receive someone according to their face. It's most likely a Semitism describes the essence of judging based on external appearances. So... What a wonderful thing that God allows us to be part of his family as redeemed sons and daughters of Christ. There's no greater status than you'll ever have. It's the greatest. And the more we lose that and try to gain status in the world, it it doesn't go well. Let's go to verses 3 and 4. And if you pay attention... To, to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down on my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Literally in the Greek, evil reasonings. So the behavior 
reveals the motives. And uh, we'll see this next week. I'm, I'm looking forward to preaching a sermon about God changing lives, redemption, new identity in Christ, and however bad bad was, we can be new. Praise God for that. So, um, have you not is a rhetorical question, implied answer, yes, you have. I think of the stories in the Bible about this, how people were, they were looking for somebody who would probably be the king. They didn't go looking for David, did they? Look at the people in, early in Luke who uh, the Holy Spirit came upon. They spoke the mighty deeds of God. They prayed, they prophesied. Shepherds considered unclean. People with no particular status. And God used them. It's not where we've been, it's where we're going and with whom. Somebody else, you're not important. Remember the parable or the story Jesus told about, it's actually not a parable. He goes in to dine with somebody and a sinner weeps on his feet and the religious leader said, looks down his nose and said, oh, he's no prophet or he wouldn't allow this person even to come to this banquet. The banquet table of the Lord may have some surprising guests. Redeemed sinners. Now, this is in the Old Testament, Leviticus 19.15. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great, but you to judge your neighbor fairly. Fairly is the point, not where you came from. So, by the way, not everybody who says they, they're going to help you has good motives. In John twelve six, Judas claimed to care for the poor, but it turned out he had the, the money box. Oh, we should to get this money. But Judas had a different thing in mind, and that was the well-being of Judas. Is there anything like that ever happening? Yeah, we've got to make sure it doesn't. We've got to be um, above board. Heirs of the kingdom. Continuing in James, James 2, 5 through 6. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? Now, before I go to another verse, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith, heirs of the kingdom? It doesn't mean that only poor people get saved. We know that from Acts. There were some very wealthy people who came to Christ, as I said, Lydia, for example. Uh, but the point is, for the most part, Christians are ra rarely the upper crust of society, but it can happen. So rich in faith is the key here, heirs of the kingdom. The eternal kingdom that we cannot now see is so profound. Jesus talked about it again and again. That believing his promises is the only way we'll be convinced that it's worth living for. Because we can't create it. And I believe that this is true. That we'll be so blessed in the eternal kingdom 
whatever our role is. Heirs of the kingdom. It's a great promise, which he promised to those who love him. The issue, do you love the Lord with all your heart, soul, strength, and might, not who noticed how great I am? But you have dishonored the poor man, and are you not the rich ones who will, or are, excuse me, are not the rich ones the ones who will press you and the ones who drag you into court? No, we were just, that's why I thought of this application from James. That's what was going on in Corinth. But it was each other. Now, getting drug into court is no pleasant experience for anybody. But if it's your brother in Christ, it's really sad. Now, how do we know that uh, somebody is going to be part of the family of God? Well, we preach the gospel and those who respond. Even, let me just cite this in Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 8. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. That's what they need to remember. You didn't have, did Abram have some great thing going for him that nobody else in earth the Chaldees had? No. Who were the Hebrews in Egypt? They were the slaves, but... God brought them out with a mighty hand. We may be not all impressive, but we're the Lord's people if we know him. None of us, this is my statement, none of us deserve to be heirs of the kingdom. God showed mercy to undeserving sinners. That is what is going to make any of us and the heir of the kingdom. Now let's go to 1 Thessalonians 5, 14 and 15. One, this, I found this again by looking for words that were used elsewhere um, in the passages we're studying. 1 Thessalonians 5, 14 and 15. And we urge you, brothers... Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See to it that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. And I'm telling you, that is a major battle for it to be true. And... It's, it's the work of the Spirit to bring fruit into our lives and to learn as we are part of the means of grace. The Word is taught. We break bread. We pray. Um, those who are baptized as they come to Christ and so on. Through these means, we're part of the family of God. And growth is growth in fruit, in love, in, in patience, in kindness, so that we don't harm people all of us have i have so many times i just my mouth sometimes gets ahead of my heart and i say things that hurt people i don't want to do that 
Uh, and so here's an admonishment and that each of us needs to take to heart. The word idle, ataktus, refers to someone or something that is out of order. In an active sense, such a person is unruly, insubordinate. I'm looking this up in the Greek here. In a passive sense, such persons are not doing what they ought and are thus lazy or idle. So, idle is not one of the gifts of the Spirit. Okay, now, we're not referring to those, as we get older, um, getting up and getting to the kitchen and getting breakfast is a major work sometimes as you get old enough. So the definition of idle kind of changes. Getting up the stairs, I remember um, being so sick not that long ago, it was a few years ago, I'd get on one stair and I'd have to wait, and another stair and I'd have to wait, and another stair and I'd have to wait while I got up. So we're not wanting anyone to feel worse about a bad situation, but we want to encourage all. And everyone, new or old, young or old, new to the Lord, or been a Christian for many years, is part of the family of God and has a calling to be part, to be active, and to be praying and to caring for one another. And that, that means not repaying anyone evil for evil, but doing good. There's two, there's a bunch of imperatives here. Two of them are to uh, see and to seek. Here's an imperative. There's a whole bunch of them, but see and seek. See that you don't repay evil. Seek the good for one another, for, to do good to one another. So these are important words that are given to us. Be patient, by the way. I like that word. In the Greek, it's macrothumio. Macrothumio. Macro is like the macro. You've heard that term, the bigger thing. And thumio is to have anger. And so it means to be long-suffering. To be so that things, it doesn't set you off real quick. Something that happens, long-suffering is bearing with it until we have time to think about what would be a godly response and not just blow off steam right away and harm someone. Long-suffering, macrothumia, to be that way. Now, one more verse here, and that's 1 Peter 2, 19 through 20. 1 Peter 2. So we're hearing from Paul, James, and Peter. We're getting a good a taste of how the apostles taught the church. 1 Peter 2, 19 and 20. It says, For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and, and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now, again, we have brackets. I mentioned brackets earlier. A word is mentioned twice at the beginning and the end. Charis is the word for grace in the Greek. It's, be- it's at the beginning, for this is grace. This is grace. At the end, this is grace. 
And what is it that's grace? Enduring sorrows while suffering unjustly. And enduring resolute in the faith, strong in the gospel, and uh, trusting God to give us what we need to endure in any situation. Grace. So I entitled the slide, Grace to be Gracious. Am I the only one who needs that? I think we all do. I I don't want to be presumptuous, but I, I know we all know it. Grace to be gracious. And sometimes the people that are most important to us are the ones we're the least gracious to. May God help us not to be that way. May God help me not to be that way. To grow, to show grace, and uh, dear ones, you've been very gracious to me today, because I didn't think I'd be able to preach because of the lack of a voice a few days ago and coughing spells. But you've been kind about it and allowed me to fill in the best I can here under a tough situation as far as the voice. So I thank you for that. Now, as we consider this, and before we have the benediction. Um, again, pray for Pastor Eric, and he went through a, a, just a horrible injury that uh, that he's healing up from after surgery. And I miss him. He was at the online prayer thing the other night, and it was so good to hear his voice. And so pray for one another, pray for whoever is suffering, and encourage the discouraged and be there for one another. That's what we need to do. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and kindness. Thank you, Lord, that there are people we've met over the years that have been gospel people who loved us and told us the truth and encouraged us. May we do that with each other. And, Lord, may we always depend on you for hope and for grace to care for one another and to look out for the welfare of every single person who you've redeemed and put into your family. And we pray for wisdom as we live in a wicked world whose beliefs and ideas and decisions are so contrary to everything that we believe. May we continue to be bold in the gospel. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.